The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to turn your Bible to the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. We'll be reading beginning in verse 11. My best friend in third grade was a Muslim, and he came from a black family. And at that young age, I was largely colorblind and knew almost nothing about the Muslim faith. Now, I would say my parents were a bit uncomfortable with the relationship, but they tolerated it as best they could. I, in hindsight, I've observed that prejudice is oftentimes learned as we grow older, as we become more aware of fears, or fears of the unknown that leads to self-protection. We live in a world of divisions, hostilities. In this age of tolerance, we find a growing intolerance. Wars continue. And there is very little from our leaders to assure us of any type of long-standing peace. God's Word speaks to the true hope for peace, for reconciliation with God and with our fellow mankind. I read beginning in Ephesians 2, verse 11. Paul writes, Therefore remember... That at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, 
being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, you indeed have sent your Son to make peace, to be our peace, to reconcile us to you and to one another. Grant us wisdom and insight as we explore this passage together. We do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You recall how in 1989, leaders in East Germany began to grant its citizens the privilege to visit West Germany, particularly important through the passageway in Berlin. No event better symbolized the reunification of Germany than the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. Having been built in 1961 under the pretense of protecting the East from the West, it effectively served as a prison to prevent people in the East from from defecting to the West. Over those nearly 30 years, thousands of people crossed illegally, and many died in the attempt. And yet, after those decades, under various pressures and cries for freedom and reform, that great wall was brought down. About a year after those events, my father was on a business trip in Germany and actually purchased a small piece of rubble, a piece of concrete colored with with uh, graffiti to keep as a family souvenir. On another border issue of completely different circumstances, there are those in America who would propose we construct a great wall of our own along the southern border of the United States with Mexico to prevent people from the south from entering illegally into our country. Now, people's motives vary based upon constitutional law, upholding the rule of law, guarding and protecting the burden and demand on our own social services to protect jobs and perhaps to prevent crime. In many people's minds, tall fences make good neighbors. We live in a fallen world where we build fences and erect walls to keep people out to keep people in. We protect ourselves against threats and unwanted encounters. Now, politics, economics, and various prides and prejudices are all factors in such decisions. In Paul's day, there was a great divide between Jew and Gentile, a racial, historical, and religious tension that was but an echo of the great divide and hostility between God and all of mankind. Every world religion seeks to bridge the gulf between God and mankind. The United Nations and other groups of leaders seek to bridge the great gulf between nations and people groups and every effort ultimately fails. There is only one 
who can bridge the great gulf. There is only one who can heal the breach and bring peace between God and mankind and between humankind as we live together. Jesus Christ is the one who tears down walls and builds up a new structure, a household, a temple for the indwelling of God, for his praise and glory, and for the indwelling of the people of God by the Spirit forever and ever. Now, the enmity that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles of Paul's day may be a bit alien to us in our day. It perhaps most resembles the modern hatred we see between Palestinians and other Arabs and the Jews that dwell in the nation-state of Israel. Each faction despises the existence of the other. Paul, in that context, writes to primarily Gentiles in the Ephesian church to remind them of their alienation, to remind them of their former status when they were foreigners to the grace and promises of God. Now he says here that in the eyes of the average Jew, the Gentiles were merely labeled as the uncircumcision. One thinks of the contemptuous statement of young David, who when he saw Goliath assaulting Israel, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the ranks of the living God? The Jewish sense of identity was deeply ground in the mark of circumcision. And though not exclusive to Israel, it was, a, it was a symbol that represented the covenant that God had initiated with their forefather Abraham, a Gentile male. In order for him to be accepted amongst the Jews, had to undergo circumcision and had to adopt the dietary customs, and the sacrificial rituals of the law of Moses. Now, much more important than missing the sign of circumcision was missing for the Gentiles what that sign represented. Paul says that they were alienated foreigners to the covenant of promises. In our day, many foreigners covet and desire the many benefits we have in America, our health care, our education system, social security, and other protections and rights. But on a much grander scale and a much deeper need, Paul says that the Gentiles were without hope in the world, following after worthless idols rather than the one true God. And notice in verse 12 how Paul ties in here belief in Christ as the fulfillment of the covenants and the promises. The one true hope that every Old Testament believer had, not in the temple, not in the sacrifices, but looking forward by faith in the coming of Jesus Christ. The three annual feasts and festivals in Israel's annual calendar. Their monthly, weekly, and daily sacrifices all pointed to the one final sacrifice 
that provided atonement for sin and full reconciliation with God. Now one looks back over the Old Testament and sees that the Israelites enjoyed some brief seasons of faithfulness under Joshua's leadership and a few reformers among the kings. How often we often find the critique of the prophets in God's word criticizing the Jews for their mere formalism, a mere going through the motions, a lack of true heart devotion to God. Moses and the prophets rebuked the people. Circumcise your hearts. A much more important, of much primary importance over and above fleshly circumcision. Even worse than formalism was the trap of idol worship, whereby Israelites should have mixed the true worship of God with various pagan beliefs and practices. And so it was that idolatry plagued and corrupted the people of God, which led to God's judgment and their exile into the land of Babylon. But Israel was not only guilty of formalism, and not only guilty of idolatry, they also developed a kind of nationalistic pride and prejudice. Rather than be a light and a blessing to the nations, a kingdom of priests, they became spoiled, entitled, and self-righteous. They became hoarders of grace. They did not want to share it. The Gentiles did not deserve God's grace. The prophet Jonah perhaps represents best his nation's attitude towards the Gentiles. The prophet resented God's kindness and compassion that he sought to demonstrate and show before the repentant Ninevite people. I was talking to a man recently who is a new resident at Water Street Men's Shelter. As we were discussing his new living arrangement, he commented to me on how many of the men who work there were once residents there at Water Street. And he, with some frustration and sadness, revealed to me that some of these workers sometimes look down upon new residents with an attitude of being better than they were, looking down upon those who were in their situation, a situation of dire straits, making condescending remarks, boasting in their new position of responsibility within the shelter. Now, I'm not criticizing Water Street. It is a fine and good ministry doing good work for the poor and those in need of help. But does illustrate the human nature. The human nature is what it is. How soon we forget our humble origins and take pride in any kind of new status. Paul seems to be challenging these Gentile believers to guard against such pride, to Remember from whence you came. Just as God repeatedly reminded Israel that they were once slaves in Egypt. Believer in Christ, you were once a slave to sin. You were once in hopeless 
bondage. And you have been ransomed and redeemed and purchased by the blood of Christ, which is a radical new foundation for your sense of identity and worth and hope and joy in this world. Well, Paul proceeds to, in verse 13 and 14, to follow me, he proceeds to contrast that state of alienation with their new status of acceptance in Christ and all the benefits that flow from a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He says that once you were far off, but now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. As a consequence for their sinful disobedience, Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, away from the presence of God. At the annual Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel would lay his hands on a goat and pronounce upon that goat all the sin, guilt, and shame of Israel and then have a man lead that goat out into the wilderness, away from their presence. Sin means expulsion. It means being cut off, separated. We know this intuitively when a spouse or a family member or even a friend lies to us or betrays us or ridicules us. There becomes distance. There is relational distance that only confession, repentance, and forgiveness can bring us near once again. Jesus, by his own blood, provides us the very means of reconciliation. It's Jesus who provides us a way for God to forgive us. God, by his loving kindness, his mercy and compassion, rather than punish us with what we justly deserve, to cast us out of his presence forever and ever, to perish and to be judged and punished in eternal judgment. God chose to punish his son. That his own son, who was able to endure his wrath, who was able to suffer in our place, took upon himself what we justly deserve. And so it is that Christ fulfills the great vision of Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far will I remove your transgressions from you. The flood in Noah's day was not enough to wipe out sin and satisfy God's wrath. But Jesus, by his blood sacrifice, opened up a new and living way by which we might draw near to the living God. In verse 14, Paul says that Jesus has become our peace. He is the reconciler who reunites us with God, and he is also the peacemaker to bring together warring peoples. It says that in his flesh, Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, if you picture in your mind the ancient temple at Jerusalem. You'll recall that in its design and architecture, at the very center was the most holy place, the sacred and holy presence of God, 
the Ark of the Covenant was the footstool of his throne. And then just beyond that, there was the holy place where we found the other pieces of furniture in which the priests would go about their work with incense and the showbread and so forth. But then beyond that area was the court of the priest, and then the court of Israel. And then even beyond that was the court of women. Now, this whole design structure was on the same level. But beyond it, one had to go down, descend down five steps onto a walled platform, and then go beyond another wall, descend another 14 steps to get to the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were barred by a one and a half meter stone barricade, which in Paul's day was, had a notice, that, a notice written in Greek and Latin, a warning that only Jews may enter and trespassers will be executed. On his last recorded visit to Jerusalem, Paul was almost torn asunder by an angry mob under the false accusation that he had brought a Gentile into the temple courts. He was rescued, you remember, by the Roman soldiers. After he had calmed the crowds, they listened to Paul explain his background and his purpose. But when he began to share with them his commission from God to preach to the Gentiles, they began an uproar. A group of men made a vow to assassinate Paul. Such was the open hostility of the Jews towards the Gentiles receiving any blessing from God. Even Jesus. When he began his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he read passages from Isaiah 61 at the synagogue in Nazareth. And the people at first marveled at the graciousness of his words, But the tone changed. And Jesus began to explain that God did not send Elijah to any of the widows of Israel, but only to a widow of Sidon. And that God had sent Elisha to not heal any of the Israelite lepers, but only Naaman the Syrian. Well, upon hearing this, the Jewish synagogue was enraged and threatened to throw, cast Jesus off a cliff to his doom. It was popular thinking in the first century in the Jewish mind that God had made the Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. Jesus rebuked such notions by his attitude, by his teaching, by his association with people, not just Jews, but many Gentiles who were drawn into his company, He repeatedly corrected his disciples by his parables and by his ministry to non-Jewish persons. Paul understood the implication of the gospel, how Jesus' life, ministry, and death brings these warring factions together, killing the hostility. He says in verse 15 and 16 that Christ himself brings peace that kills the hostility. Well, how does that happen? He says here that Jesus abolished the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances. Now, wait a minute. I thought Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill, to satisfy the law. 
what I think a health, helpful interpretation here is to recognize that the language and the context indicate that Paul was not referring to the moral law, but rather the ceremonial law, that Christ in his coming has fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. And therefore, circumcision is no longer necessary. Cleanliness practices regarding food and ceremonial washing, washings were no longer required. The animal sacrifices were done because one final sacrifice had appeared to take away sins forever. Thus, there was nothing left to separate the Jews from the Gentiles. In the book of Acts, we see this dynamic developing as the apostles slowly realize that the Gentiles have been accepted in the sight of God, not by way of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And thus they resolved to no longer impose circumcision. The rituals of food and dietary rules and certainly no longer sacrifices to the pagans who now were embracing the gospel and being filled with the very Spirit of God. Now, there were some Jews who had a hard time accepting this and needed frequent rebukes from Paul and the other apostles. But Paul makes the point very clear that we are reconciled with God and have peace with one another by way of the cross. And that means that to say that anybody needs more than Christ or anything different than Christ is to deny the very gospel message and to erect a new wall division. All people, regardless of race, political persuasion, wealth, socioeconomic status, education, social status, everybody needs Christ as Savior. People need Christ more than they need to change their habits or social beliefs. I'm pleased to say that in large measure, I believe Westminster is a Christ and gospel-centered church. And yet we still have walls. Now I'm not referring to steel and timber or siding, or drywall. I refer to those invisible walls that we erect with our images, our expectations, those things that we communicate about what kinds of people are accepted here, the way people dress, the way people talk, their background what they can contribute, what kind of baggage and burdens they might bring in here, all determine whether or not our church is right for them. The challenge for me, and I believe the challenge for you from this passage, is that we need to make attempts to lower our walls. We must labor to make the cross central in our preaching, our teaching, and all of our ministries, that people might be drawn to the beauty and the glory of Christ and not be repelled by the stench of our own attitudes, our pride, and our prejudices. We are all guilty, myself included. Now, I'd like to take this time to commend those 
who have labored hard to seek out and welcome those who might, on a surface level, seem out of place. I think God is pleased by the way the social walls have been lowered around here, particularly by receiving refugees, people from Eastern Asian cultures, people for whom English is new, and the Christian faith is new as well, who are being loved and welcomed by people who seek to share with them the love and the peace of Christ. We celebrated this morning with a new launching of ministry trying to equip such peoples to worship effectively with us in the English language. I can also say that the new special needs ministry emphasis is another way in which our walls are being lowered. It's been said that parents with special needs children are in many ways an unreached people group. Worship at church without support can be very difficult. Praise God. Praise the living God for the way he is working in and through this congregation. And might we continue to seek him and trust him to consider how we might further lower our walls to allow those to enter whom the Spirit would choose to bring into Westminster Presbyterian Church. Well, the cross of Christ is not only the only way that we are reconciled with God, it is also the only way that we might achieve true peace with other people. I've noticed in my brief years that seems that every American president pledges to negotiate peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis. It never happens. It's always a futile political statement based upon no no reasonable hope whatsoever. Now, I value the work of negotiators and mediators, those who seek to resolve disputes between unions and corporations and other factious parties. And yet, we must recognize that all such resolutions are temporary. There is no lasting peace. In the end, we simply settle for peace in our lifetime. Our president is commended for staying off war during his term in office. And yet, the hostilities continue to grow and fester. Paul paints us a vision in the remaining verses of our text, a vision that there is only one who can eliminate hostility and establish true peace. He says in verse 17 that Jesus came to preach peace to those who are far off and preach peace to those who are near. It's by him, in verse 18, that we both have access by one spirit, to the Father. There is room for everyone at God's table. God delights to have everyone a part of his household and in his kingdom. There will be no jockeying for position. There will be no lack of resources. Nothing to fight and quarrel about. God amply provides for his people who will seek him and trust in him. In verse 19, we're reminded that we are no longer aliens or strangers, but we are all fellow 
citizens and members of God's household. I appreciate the opportunity that our young people have to attend the Urbana Missions Conference held every three years in St. Louis, Missouri, where 18,000 people gather, almost literally from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people group, a rich expression of the diverse body of Christ to worship the living God and hear the word preached. It truly, in many ways, is a glimpse and foretaste of the glorious diversity of heaven. The American Constitution is a good one. And its policy towards immigration and citizenship, its establishment of justice and the rule of law is commendable and we, is something to hang on to. And yet, Paul says here that the gospel provides us something better because it is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the chief cornerstone. And God's interest is not just in building up a nation. He is building a church, which is an organic body that grows into a holy temple of the Lord. We are becoming the dwelling place of the living God. That God wants to dwell with us, to fellowship amongst us, to be in our midst, to be near us and with us for all eternity. And until that great and glorious day, we are called to make this as much a reality as possible on earth. The church is called to be a place of peace and a world that is hostile. A place of acceptance where many people suffer rejection. A place where it doesn't matter what your credentials are. It doesn't matter what you have merited in the world's eyes. It is a place where we turn in our merit our badges of merit and honor, and embrace the one identity that truly matters. Who we are as sons and daughters of the living God. Through faith in Jesus Christ. I predict that after November 6th, half of America will be elated, and the other half will be gloom and doom, threatening to withdraw and withdraw from America for the next four years, we're reminded that the day is coming when there will be neither Democrat nor Republican ruling over us. We await the one who will satisfy his constituents with true justice and righteousness. It was once said that World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Politicians promised peace with all kinds of propaganda and slogans, but cannot deliver. Friend, put your hope in the true prince of peace. And believe him when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Having received peace with God through Jesus Christ, and making peace with others by way of the cross. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we are so grateful that you have reconciled us to yourself through the perfect work, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is our peace. And we exalt you and we praise you, our Prince of Peace. 
And we ask that you would lead us and guide us. Help us to be peacemakers, to be your representatives. And may you be honored and glorified in our lives, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.